Praise you, Heavenly Father. We thank you this morning that our God, you, the Almighty, the one who was and who is and who is to come, of whom and through whom and to whom are all things, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we worship you this day. You are not like the false gods of this earth, figments of the imagination of sinful, meandering minds, of mere men lost in their transgressions and sins, false gods that require the worshipers to believe that they exist, otherwise their memory is lost to history. That our God rules and reigns. He exercises His power in justice, in judgments, and also in steadfast love and mercy. We thank you, Father, that you have opened our blind eyes to see the glorious truth of the gospel. We thank you that you've awakened our souls to the reality of our sinful condition and given us salvation in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so in our praises, in our confession, and with our meditations, we crown you as king. Not because you aren't before we said so, but we acknowledge what has always been the case. Before time began, before this world was even a thought in anyone's mind, you, the eternal, uncreated one, the self-existent, holy one, were there in perfect love and communion and fellowship with yourself. And you have seen fit to glorify your great name by manifesting yourself to your creatures such that we can now know you. And through our mediator, Jesus Christ, be reconciled to the Father. It is glorious to serve the glorious King. And we thank you that we can in and through the gospel. This morning as we open your scriptures, teach us, we pray, the glories therein contained. Soften our hearts <coughs> to hear the convicting word of truth. Open our minds to comprehend the glories that you have written down for us to see of your nature and character. And give our faith <coughs> strength, boldness, and clarity to proclaim the gospel to others that we might see this world, Lord Jesus, bow its knee before the King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you for this opportunity we have by the power of your blood to purchase Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Praise the Lord. This morning, let's celebrate the glorious gift of the Holy Scriptures given to us by turning to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah 3.10 through chapter 4.5 will be our passage this morning. By God's grace, we will likely have two more messages in this book. And I trust that you've grown to appreciate, as I have, the depth of this minor prophet, though just four chapters. There's so much here to appreciate. This morning, the aim of today's message is to magnify the grace of God considering His track record versus ours. To magnify the grace of God, comparing His track record or considering His track record in contrast to our own. Our own track record is represented by Jonah, who himself, a sinner though a prophet called by God, there are vulnerable and candid moments where we see his weakness, and they are actually featured in the close of this book, especially in chapter 4. The title of this morning's message is Maddening Kindness. Maddening Kindness. Why that title, you might ask? It's because the kindness of the Lord, His grace and mercy, drove Jonah crazy. Why did it do so? Well, we will see so today. Primarily, it's because of his sin and self-righteousness. And God was disciplining and training His prophet. At the same time, He was disciplining and bringing a city to repentance. With that introduction, your Bible open, would you stand with me out of reverence for the Word of God and let us consider this infallible truth before us this day again, Jonah 3, 10 through 4, 5. When God saw what they did, speaking of Nineveh, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them and He did not do it. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, 
Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. (coughs) For I knew that you are a a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city city, and made a booth for himself there. (laughs) He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. This is the word of God. You may be seated. I do have several other scriptures to turn to today. But I think it is appropriate because Jonah actually quotes from them. There is a confessional statement, almost a creedal statement, that is in our text today in Jonah 4.2. And Jonah mentions this in passing, even complaining, when he says of the Lord and His nature and character that He is a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and and relenting from disaster. Jonah knows this because he knows the Scriptures And he knows the history of God's dealings with his people. Uh, Other prophets knew this as well. Turn with me quickly to uh, Jeremiah chapter 18. It's almost, at face value, it would seem that Jonah's almost accusing God of of a wrong and wishing, certainly wishing for different circumstances in his forgiveness of the city of Nineveh upon the repentance. But Jonah knows better. He knows better because the word of God has been spoken in prior times, other places, other prophets. Words like these, this is Jeremiah 18, verses 7 and 8. Listen to what the word of God declares. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. This is a promise from God. Jonah should have known this. In fact, in the back of his mind, Jonah did. When he declared in Jonah 3, verse 4, that yet 40 days Nineveh shall be overthrown, there was something implied yet unstated in his eight-word sermon. What was implied and what was actually true of the Lord was this fact that if a nation concerning which God had spoken, yet forty days and I will destroy it, turns from its evil. That is, if it repents, God had promised, has promised, He will relent of the disaster that He intended to do to it. That is to say, as Jonah confessed, that He will relent from the disaster, He will abound, show Himself abounding, mercy, grace, and steadfast love. Now notice the contrast of Jonah's attitude in chapter 4 to his prayer of thankfulness upon his own salvation in chapter 2. In chapter 2, Jonah unequivocally confessed upon his own deliverance from well-deserved calamity, what? Chapter 2, verse 9, last phrase. Salvation belongs to the Lord. This phrase serves well as a theme for this minor prophet, for the whole book. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's not Jonah's to say who gets it and who doesn't. If Jonah's to be saved by a fish... That salvation is the Lord's, and it's His to dispense. And in His steadfast love, if He chooses to prepare to appoint a fish to swallow His servant, so be it. He has the right, the ability to do so. And if God chooses to grant salvation upon the penitent heart, sackcloth, fasting, ashes of an entire city, 120,000 some people and the cattle, then God has the right and the ability to do it. Why? Because salvation belongs to the Lord. It's an ironic display of Jonah's own fickle heart and perhaps a mirror for our own. And we see him just a few verses later resenting the very truths he had so recently realized, he had so recently realized as great occasion to worship the Lord. Jonah's worshiping the Lord. Salvation belongs to you. Thank you for saving me. And now he resents the fact, after the saving of Nineveh, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Why did you save them? Jonah finds the kindness of God toward his enemies, the Ninevites, maddening. It's driving him crazy. He can't stand it. Praise God, he owns salvation when he grants it to me. 
But what a travesty he would grant grace and mercy to those murderous pagans, Jonah seems to confess. In so doing, Jonah betrays the tendency of every human heart towards self-righteousness. You and I are more like Jonah than than we often want to realize. We ourselves, in maybe a little different way or a little different situation, still tend toward self-righteousness. If we find Jonah's reaction absurd, uh, reaction absurd thinking, if we find that his reaction is absolutely ridiculous, we could never relate to this childish level of irrationality. This may be our first clue that all sinners, including ourselves, are susceptible to the sin, sins of self-righteousness. Far from cause for resentment, the repentance of Nineveh is an exceptional marvel, and this is what Jonah was missing. The repentance of Nineveh was an exceptional miracle, perhaps, as we've stated before, the most successful recorded evangelistic campaign of the ancient world. Israel, after all, by contrast, at this time was graced with multiple prophets. We read their words throughout the Old Testament. And they had, furthermore, the stewardship of the revelation of God in their history. God had saved him. He had shown them the gospel by commanding them to slay slay the lamb, put the blood on their doorposts, lead them out of captivity, Pharaoh representing sin, across the Red Sea into the promised land representing his salvation. This was their history. They were stewards of the revelation of God, not only in these actions, but also in his scriptures. They had the word of God in hand. Yet they, the Israelites, northern and southern kingdoms alike, remained obstinate, rebellious, hard-hearted to the call for repentance from their own sin. They would soon, that is, the northern kingdom especially, in fact, at the hands of the Assyrians themselves, they would soon embrace disastrous occupation and exile for their rebellion. Meanwhile, a whole city of Gentile pagan idolaters cry out in sackcloth and fasting upon an eight-word sermon by a lone surly prophet. The commentator Matthew Henry reminds us, he says, quote, There was a wonder of divine grace in the repentance and reformation of Nineveh. It condemns the men of the gospel generation, Matthew 12, 41, which again states that the men of that generation in it will rise up in condemnation against those who heard the gospel, a lot more than an eight-word sermon, a lot clearer too. God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, as a propitiation, the Lamb of God, to die for your sins. and You, you, you refuse to hear, you refuse to repent. The men of Nineveh, who heard this sermon, yet 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. They will be your judges on the final day if you do not recognize your Messiah Christ. That was a message from Jesus in Matthew 12, 41. A very small degree of light, Matthew Henry goes on to say, may convince men that humbling themselves before God, confessing their sins with prayer, and turning from sin are means of escaping wrath and obtaining mercy. Praise the Lord. This was evident, a marvel, a miracle in the salvation of Nineveh. Let's take for our outline this morning, Jonah 4.2. This verse that Jonah rehearses because he knows it well from the Scriptures. In the second portion, he says, For I knew, again, that you are a gracious God and merciful. Let's take that as our heading. Grace and mercy magnified. Grace and mercy of God are magnified considering the following. First of all, considering that He is, as the verse continues, slow to anger. Secondly, that He is abounding in steadfast love. And thirdly, that He is relenting from disaster. The grace and mercy of the Lord are magnified considering God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Let us look at examples of this in the book of Jonah and a couple beyond. First of all, slow to anger. Consider the grace and mercy of God magnified in that He is slow to anger toward Jonah. A question for you this morning. Given the record in this text, did God have good reason to be angry with Jonah? Absolutely. Jonah deserved hell and he showed it. 
in hearing the very words of God and disobeying and running 180 degrees in the opposite direction. God's anger, however, was slow toward Jonah. He did not crush him in a moment. He did not rain sulfur from heaven. He did not strike him with a bolt of lightning or turn him to a pillar of salt in an instant, though he would have been right, just, and holy to do so. Instead, he brought a discipline, discipline by way of storm and discipline by way of large sea animal, fish to swallow him, discipline by way of correcting his course by his sovereign hand. In chapter 1, verse 17, of course, we're reminded of how God did this. It says, and God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. God made a plan. He scheduled a job description for this fish and pointed him the direction of this boat that was in dire straits and said, I will soon have my son thrown overboard. Make sure you be there at 1030 sharper whenever it was to swallow him before he drowns. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Why? Why that three-day period? Why the fish? Because God's anger was slow toward Jonah. And in this example, he magnifies his mercy and his grace to his prophet who knows better. One could say to some degree the Ninevites were dumb pagan Gentiles. They didn't know as well. Because they hadn't had the same degree of revelation, they were culpable, yes, because God had written His law in their hearts, but they didn't have the benefit of the multiple prophets of God and His holy written word and the testimony in their history of His works among them. Yet Jonah, he had less excuses. Less excuses to be sure, yet God's anger was slow toward Jonah. Jonah recognizes this in the following chapter, chapter 2. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. The floods surrounded me, and your waves and your billows passed over me. And even this language Jonah gathers from the Psalms. The Psalms written by David who had gone before him provide the perfect words to describe his situation. Why? Because David also knew the slowness, if you will, of the anger of the Lord. Himself having committed adultery with Bathsheba, having murdered Uriah, having all the while committing theft and breaking virtually all the Ten Commandments, yet God did not destroy David in that moment, though he certainly had the right to. Why? Because he magnified, he chose to magnify his grace and mercy in the course of his servant's life and experience by demonstrating his slowness to wrath. Sheol, death, destruction, hell, is what David, is what Jonah deserved. Not to mention what he would later ask for in the case of Jonah. I mean, turn over to chapter 4, verse 3, and listen to this, uh, to the pettiness of, of Jonah as he continues to complain. He says, Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, For it is better for me to die than to live. Vindictive, self-destructive, self-pity. Before, get the irony here, Jonah had just praised the Lord. I was dead to rights, I was in Sheol, I was swallowed by the deep, virtually gone. And you saved me, salvation belongs to the Lord. Hallelujah. And just moments later, he's like, it's better for me to die. Please take my life from me. I don't even want to live anymore if you're going to save these people. Did God grant Jonah's hasty wish? Did God listen to Jonah's petulant, childish complaint and say, oh, fine, if that's what you want, and strike him dead in a moment? No, why? Because he magnifies his grace and his mercy in the slowness of his wrath toward Jonah. God appointed a fish, and he appointed opportunity for repentance for Jonah. Three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and as our story continues later, We'll see even after his complaining upon the salvation of Nineveh, God provides Jonah again a second opportunity for repentance. Let's also consider the slowness of God's anger towards Nineveh. This, of course, is also obvious in the text. It's apparent when we see that twice God has made uh, provisions to reach this city with the truth. 
At first, God's word came in 1-2, chapter 1, he said, Arise, the Lord, to Jonah, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. And Jonah foils the whole thing, or it would appear to on the surface, by running the opposite way, and God begins to deal with this servant. Inadvertently, uh, the men on the ship are saved as a silver lining to this rebel's uh, running away escape plan. But then because God is slow toward a- to anger toward the city of Nineveh, who knows how long all of this intermediate floundering of Jonah took, but God says a second time in chapter 3, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it what I tell you. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And you know what he announced, 40 days in Nineveh shall be overthrown. Here's an interesting question. When was the 40 days supposed to start counting down? Well, if Jonah had obeyed right away, the 40 days would presumably have begun after the reasonable amount of time it would take Jonah to go from Judah or uh, Judea or Israel, northern kingdom area, for that 500-mile distance or so to Nineveh. So give him a few days there, and then 40 days will commence. Well, for sure, way more time was wasted in between. Yet, when Jonah finally went to the city of Nineveh, he didn't say, you know, due to my floundering and bobbling this whole thing, you only have 20 days left. No. God gave 40 days from the time when Jonah began to proclaim his word. Even though this was the second time, he adjured him to go and to bring his word. Why? Because God's mercy and grace was evident in that his anger was slow toward even this city, even Nineveh. And this is proven again as we continue to read the effect that Jonah's preaching had on the people. It said in verse 5, it says in verse 5, Jonah 3, And the people of Nineveh believed in God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. And we know even the king was involved in this. And then in verse 10, in the summary of this incident, we read, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way. God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This was a city where, upon God's gaze, every time he looked down on these, this feeble anthill of humanistic rebellion, he saw all of these buildings that were monuments to the pride and the sin of every last individual in that city. He could see from this vantage point in glory the temple to Nabu and the temple to Ishtar and whatever the gods were. And he watched as decade after decade parades of filth and violence were walked through the streets and people committed every sin and invented new ones generation by generation. This whole place stood for the cesspool of human depravity as God witnessed the defacing of his great name year after year after year, yet he did not crush this city. And one might ask, how could God grant forgiveness when a few moments of repentance seems such a little piece of sacrificial repentance against years and years and years of absolute rebellion against the one true almighty God? Well, the reason is, is because repentance itself is a gift from God Almighty. And God chooses under these kinds of circumstances to magnify His grace and mercy, showing His anger is slow, even toward Nineveh. God provided a 40-day probationary period, if you will, because His anger was slow toward Nineveh. Turn to Exodus 34. God's anger was also slow to Israel. And this was one of those accounts that Jonah knew well. And this is, and there's a portion of this account that he in fact cites in his complaint. Exodus 34 verse 1, you might recall this story. The Lord said to Moses, cut for yourselves two tables of stone like the first. Wait, like the first? Yes, this is a second set of Ten Commandments that are about to be made here. Why second? Because the first was destroyed upon the anger of Moses when he saw the flagrant sin of the people worshiping idols when God had delivered them by the power of his right hand, splitting the Red Sea and drowning their enemies. Why didn't God destroy them as they deserved? Because his anger was slow. 
I will write on the tablets, we continue to read in verse 1, the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. So you see the patience of the Lord in granting a second time His word to His people. As we continue to read in verse 5, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Him, that is Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him, the Lord passed before Moses, that is to say, and proclaimed, listen, the Lord, the Lord, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, does this sound familiar? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And he goes on to reveal his character in his mercy and in his judgments. So what do we see? In the context of Israel's rebellion and the second chance with the second delivery of his word and law to his people, God reveals his character to Israel by saying, He is slow to anger. He is merciful and gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This isn't the only incident, although that would be enough to impress upon the conscience conscience of any sober individual such that they should never forget but God reveals himself in this way again numbers 14 is another example you don't necessarily have to turn there but let me just touch upon it briefly in numbers 14 11 here the circumstance is that the people had risen up against the Lord's anointed his servant Moses who was a prophet and was certifiably their leader by more than enough signs but the people grew angry with Moses and began to complain. The Lord said to Moses in verse 11, How long will this people despise me, and how long will they not believe in me in spite of the things that I have done for them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them, disinherit them and I will make of you a, great nation, a nation greater and mightier than they. So here we see the justice of the Lord in His intent to bring judgment upon His people, swift and decisively so. What does Moses do? Listen, Moses, as a picture of Christ our Lord, as a type of a Messiah, that is, one who would go between and intercede, begins to pray for the people. This is no accident. This is the gospel uh, exemplified in this account. Verse 13, Moses said to the Lord, Then the Egyptians will hear of it, and you will be brought up this people, for you brought up this people in your might and from them, and they will tell the inhabitants of the land, They have heard that you, O Lord, are in the midst of the people, for you, O Lord, are seen face to face, and your clouds stand over them, and you go before them in a pillar of cloud by day, and in a pillar of fire by night. Now if you kill this people as one man, then the nations who have heard of your fame will say, it is because the Lord was not able to bring this people into the land that he swore to give them, that he has killed them in this wilderness. And now please let the power of the Lord be great as you have promised." And listen, the promise to which uh, Moses stakes his appeal, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. So the Lord answers favorably the mediation of His servant, of Moses. A picture of the Lord looking upon the mediation of Jesus Christ and smiling with His slowness of anger. More than this, His grace and mercy upon us. So we contrast this slowness of anger to the anger of Jonah back in our text today and suddenly we see how sinful his state of attitude, his of heart really is. Consider how slow God's anger was to Jonah, to Nineveh, to Israel and now read again Jonah 4.1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. Did Jonah have a right to be mad? Absolutely not. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, Uh, Is this not what I said when I was yet in my country when I made haste to flee to Tarshish? So he says, because I knew you were going to have grace and mercy upon this people, that's why I ran away. You can understand why I did so, because this is just like you, to show your grace and mercy. This was his reason for running. It was occasion for his second prayer of vindictive self-pity. 
prophets, mere prophets, mere men, Moses, Jonah, are not always slow to anger. In fact, seldom are. But thank the Lord that their word and their attitude is overruled by the King of Kings, who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And that brings us to point number two. Grace and mercy magnified, considering God is slow to anger, and secondly, abounding in steadfast love. Again, in Jonah's account, we see that God was abounding in steadfast love toward him. He says as much in chapter 2. Let us go back to his prayer of praise, verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Do you see that? Jonah says that the basis of his hope is the steadfast love of the Lord. If God did not have steadfast love, he would be dead. He would have drowned. There would have been no fish, no opportunity for repentance. Verse 9. Jonah continues, But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. An altar was provided in the fish, and his prayer was heard in the sanctuary. Verse 7, My prayer came to you into your holy temple. An altar was provided in the sea creature, and his prayer was heard in the sanctuary. Why? Because God's mercy and grace was magnified, showing that his steadfast love abounded toward Jonah. God's steadfast love abounded toward Nineveh. An altar was provided for them as well, not in a fish, but under sackcloth. In verse 6 of the next chapter, chapter 3, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, sat in ashes. He issued a proclamation that man and beast, young and old, rich and poor, they all do the same, as you recall. He said, verse 8, But let every man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Cover yourself in this gesture of humility, in this clothing of, self, uh, of self-affliction, as it were, of making yourself low and humiliated, and call out mightily to God. That is, offer your prayer to Him. Let everyone turn from his evil way, repent, and from the violence that is in his hands, noting the specific and prevalent sins of the day. Who knows God may turn and relent and turn from His fierce anger so that we may not perish. And of course, God does. Why? Because an altar was provided under the sackcloth of repentance. God was magnifying His grace and mercy and showing the abundance of His steadfast love toward Nineveh. This point is even further magnified when we consider that in this little incident here, in this major incident here, no sacrifice was provided. But except that, you could say, of a broken spirit, and a contrite heart, which Psalm 51, 17 teaches us is the substance of repentance anyways. And though presumably it's not recorded, so we assume that no lamb, no goat was slain to appease the wrath of the Almighty. There was only humility and prayer and crying out, repentance turning from sin, and asking God to have mercy, throwing yourself upon His sovereign grace, Upon these conditions, broken spirit and a contrite heart, it pleased the Lord to magnify His grace and mercy, showing His abundant, steadfast love to Nineveh. God showed this abundant love to Israel. Again, our examples in each case, we're kind of going through a catalog of them to see, again, the, all these reasons in Jonah and the greater word of God for events like this. And in Nehemiah 9, we touched upon this last time, so we won't go into it in depth. But this is a time of repentance and a reinstitution of the nation of Israel. Jerusalem has been rebuilt. A temple worship is being reinstituted. And it happens under these conditions. This is the people of God learning something, we are learning something from the testimony of Nineveh. On the 24th day, verse 1 of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. So again, we see in the case of Israel, an altar was provided them under the sackcloth. They, uh, the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. They listened to the book of the law 
I mentioned to you a, a short sermon. Uh, it was only eight words that Jonah preached, but un, unless you get uh, 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 too uh, antsy that that's really the biblical length, listen to this one. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. So I figure if I'm somewhere between eight words and a quarter of the day, that's about right. In another quarter of the day, they made confession and worship the Lord their God. But as they worship, listen to what they say. We go down, they begin to recount the deeds of the Lord. And we see in verse 17 the following. We'll back up to 16. But they, our fathers, acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Listen. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. So again, in the context of a second chance, rebuilding the nation that had been led into captivity because of their sin, we see the steadfast love abounding to them as they recall the greatness of their Lord, of their Lord and His forgiveness of their sins upon their repentance. Again, we contrast this to Jonah's attitude at the end of the book, and it brings the point even more vividly to the fore. From Jonah's, Jonah has a plan after this in verse 5. It says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. What's he doing? He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Why did Jonah do this? Get the picture. He has just preached the most amazing uh, you know, crusade revival you've ever seen in just about all recorded history. And then he's upset that it was so successful. So he goes up to a hill above the city to get a kind of bird's eye view of the place. He builds a little temporary shelter from himself, crosses his arm as I imagine, sits down and pouts and looks upon the city and starts to count to see if God will destroy it. Sat under the shade till he should see what would become of that city. From his vantage point, Jonah, hope against hope, He's thinking, maybe God will actually destroy the city. He's hoping that he will see fire fall down from heaven and incinerate this place. Pathetic. Why is it pathetic? Because he's forgotten so quickly the steadfast love of the Lord toward him. He is in his heart. He is denigrating. He's taking lightly the grace and mercy of God shed abroad to him who deserve destruction. He's not considering the things of the Lord, which would consider it a great, uh, or the uh, testimony of the Lord, which would count this a great miracle that he would magnify his mercy and grace by showing steadfast love to even these Gentiles. Praise the Lord. Last point this morning. God's grace and mercy are magnified when we consider God relents from disaster. Again, in our main text, in our main verse, Jonah complains, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and finally, relenting from disaster. We see very quickly under this point that God's grace and mercy was magnified in Nineveh. He relented from the disaster of the 40 days uh, that of, uh, upon this 40-day waiting period. And unless something changed, they would be destroyed. God relented from that uh, message, that proclamation of judgment upon the repentance, honoring what Jeremiah had said in chapter 18, 7 through 8. If any nation hears the word and repents, I will turn and I will not destroy them. Secondly, we have yet another example of him relenting from his disaster, God relenting from his disaster toward Israel. And this comes in another minor prophet namely Joel. And I'll just touch upon it briefly for you uh, this morning. This is Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, again the voice of the prophet to the people, bringing the very words of God. Notice what he calls for. He says, With fasting and weeping and with mourning, 
and rend your hearts and not your garments. So again, he's calling for these gestures of humility to represent a contrition of the soul, a, a, a feeling sorry and a, and, and a bowing low of the heart before the power of God, recognizing our great desperation because of the judgment due our sin. He says, rend your hearts, not your garments, return to the Lord your God, verse 13, for he is gracious and merciful. Notice the language. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Again, nearly word for word what Jonah stated in, his, in chapter 4, verse 2 of his book. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him, grain offering and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Again, he calls, consecrate a fast. Call for a solemn assembly. Gather the people. Consecrate the congregation. Assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride from his chamber. Again, he's calling for the same conditions that occurred in Nineveh. Young to old, from elder to younger, from everyone, including uh, the, from the infants to the king, as it were. Assemble yourselves and fast. Uh, bear your hearts before the Lord and see if he will not relent. Between the vestibule and the altar, verse 17, let the priests and ministers of the Lord weep and say, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? The Lord had promises delivered through his prophets of old to spare judgment. In this case, there was a coming of the Lord in judgment. And the promise was that God would relent. And in this case, Israel would be spared if they did what Nineveh did, consecrate themselves, set themselves apart from their sin and from their pagan <coughs> lifestyle, take on clothing of humility and repentance, fast from that necessary food, recognizing that it's even more necessary still that your spirit be in right standing with the Lord and have the provision that it needs. And if you do these things, the promise is, God will relent from his disaster. Why? Again, because it pleases him to magnify his grace and his mercy in saving a people who trust in him as their savior from their sins. In closing this morning, turn to Romans chapter 3. God has relented from his disaster in our case. God has relented from disaster, that is to say, in our case as well. And these principles are never more clear than when we see them in their New Testament light. In the revelation of the prophet of prophets, Christ himself, our sacrifice, who averted the disaster in his work on Calvary. Paul tells us as much in these deep and probing and powerful words, Romans 3.21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So, Pausing there, we see that Jonah, Joel, Moses have all borne witness to uh, something that would come, a key for the abounding steadfast love to be experienced by the people of God, a key to understand his slowness of wrath and to experience relent or escape from disaster. We find it in Christ as we continue to read Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. Pausing there, no distinction between Israel and Nineveh, we find in the gospel. He goes on, Paul, verse 23, For all have sinned, you're familiar with these words, and fallen short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. When God relented of His disaster in Nineveh, He did so on the basis that His Son would die for their sins. God covered over, He overlooked as it were, He atoned for on the basis of Christ's coming shed blood for Jonah, for the Ninevites, 
for all who place their faith in Him. And this is where the day of reckoning comes at the cross and it's being proclaimed. This is the ground of God's grace and mercy. Ultimately speaking, verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. God is just because the disaster that we deserved that the Ninevites deserved, that the children of Israel when they fell into idolatry deserved was taken by Jesus Christ himself on Calvary. So we see God relenting from disaster toward us. Now let us ask this closing application question. Are we ever like Jonah, not realizing the weight of these things and our personal salvation so that we are self-righteous? and look at others as less deserving of the grace of God than we are? This is great occasion for us to repent, to learn from Jonah. Learn the easy way. Jonah learned the hard way. Look at his testimony and realize the tendency to fall into this kind of self-righteousness. And I asked myself a lot of questions. Jonah's reaction seems so counterintuitive. Can we really relate to it? And I knew I was missing something because the Bible is not written for an obscure situation. But there are timeless truths that apply in all places in all times. Are we ever like Jonah was a question in my mind. It occurred to me, here's one example of an application point. Jonah is a great study of when geopolitical tensions eclipse gospel affections. What do I mean by that? Geopolitical tensions eclipse gospel affections. So fear of enemies in the world become more important to us than loving Christ and obedience to His call on our lives. When I think of it that way, because this is exactly what the situation was. The Assyrians were threatening northern Israel. In fact, they invaded them in about 100 years as I, as I see it uh, recorded in history after Jonah lived. He had good reason to despise these people on a geopolitical basis. They were a threat. The Nineveh... W- ended up being the capital of Assyria and these bloodthirsty tyrants came in and actually took people captive and wreaked great havoc in the land. This is why Jonah despised them. This is why he'd sooner see them destroyed than see, see them saved. His geopolitical uh, uh, ideas of fear eclipsed his gospel affections and he needed to have a reversal in his priorities. In our day, you know, I'm a talk radio junkie, probably listen to it a little too much, and so I can really relate to this point because my mind is easily led astray into the same tendency. If you listen to much of the news these days, you might find yourself with an obsessive concern for our borders, a fear that they're being overrun, what that might mean for us, an obsessive fear of nuclear tyrants and threats, an obsessive fear of Islam. These are all things that I see recurring in the news feeds. When our first thoughts ought to be in all these cases that the gospel is more powerful than any geopolitical threat. Our first thoughts ought to be to go to these very peoples that might seek unlawful entry to our nation with the truth that Jesus Christ has died for them. That's exactly what Jonah did. To call for missionaries, pray for their safe passage, and even if they are martyred, pray that it would be the seed for the church and Understand that there's no more powerful force than the Word of God. One man, if God so chooses, can bring a wicked city with all the power you can imagine at their disposal to their knees with eight words of truth. We should pray for the salvation of Kim Jong-un, that petulant little dictator over there who boasts a nuclear arson thinking that, or talking about taking us out. Do we hate this man? Do we fear this man? Or do we pray for his salvation? What about supporting the Iranian underground church as the primary force to set peace aright again and a level playing field where there can be understanding between nations whose relations are so tense right now based on the way politics, the ball bounces these days? How about to teach the Muslims that Jesus shed his blood so they don't need to shed their own or their children's or their enemies? in pursuit of salvation. 
Do any of these suggestions hit closer to home? They did for me, and that's why I offer them today. Remember, in all these cases, the gospel is more powerful than any other circumstances. And God is pleased, as we see exemplified in our text today, to magnify His grace and mercy by demonstrating slowness of anger to persons and peoples and factions such as I have just named, because He seeks to glorify Himself even against the wickedness of man's sin. God's grace and mercy is magnified when He is slow to anger, when He is abounding in steadfast love, and when He relents from the disaster that all of us sinners deserve. So let us pray for Jonah moments where the gospel goes forward, pricks the heart of the unbeliever, including our own, so that we may stand in faith and, if need be, in repentance, in order that His glory may cover this earth as the waters cover the sea. Let us pray this morning. Father, we thank You for the testimony of Your truth that comes so clearly from the pages of Scripture. It has that uncanny way of separating and dividing between those areas of our thinking and affections that do not conform to the image of your Son and that which has been deposited by the Holy Spirit of God. We pray that the first would be cut away and left aside in order that we might look more like Jesus, be encouraged in our faith, and walk circumspectly in a manner worthy of our call. We pray that you remind us in the words of the gospel we've heard this day that your slowness of anger, your steadfast love, and your relenting from disaster we deserve toward us, Lord, is the greatest gift and it's worthy of an eternity of worship and ought to, Lord, fill our mind with glorious meditation day after day, morning and evening. Help us, Lord Jesus, when we fall short to return to your scripture and to conform to its precepts. Lead us and guide us in your way. And finally, this morning, if there are any who fellowship among us whose hearts have not been drawn to salvation and faith in Jesus Christ, and they're yet like the Ninevites who lie outside the good graces of the fellowship of the Almighty, we pray that you would change their heart, draw them unto salvation, that they would trust in Jesus Christ, that lamb that was slain as a propitiation for their sins, that they might live eternally with us, bringing glory to your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.